Amen. Let's look at John 6 this morning. John chapter 6. And uh, we'll begin in verse 34. One of the middle parts of this chapter, very long chapter here where Jesus is breaking down the bread. Uh, he fed uh, the people bread uh, in an amazing way, miraculous way, uh, in a way that exhibited his deity. Because no one but God takes five loaves and two fish and feeds 5,000 with them. This is not the kind of miracle that is like an everyday ho-hum kind of thing. It's funny to me the way the Bible presents it because it just tells it in passing. And then, of course, of the fragments that remain, there are 12 baskets full. And the Bible tells you the number of men and then lets you know also that there were women and children present. So you assume there were a lot of people there. Um, and But there's not... It, the people are... They, they're going to come and take him by force to make him a king. And there's a reason for that. They think that this is something special, but the Bible doesn't doesn't put like neon lights around what Jesus did and big flashing signs and arrows pointing to it saying, look at this, look at this, what he did. <clears throat> we we recognize the work that God is doing, but but the point is not the work. The point is not the miracle. And of course, we know that the miracles don't actually bring conversion in people's lives. The, the, witnessing a miracle doesn't make believers out of people. It just doesn't. Um, but there's a bigger point to be made, and Jesus is breaking that down. He takes a long time to do that in this chapter. So we're going to look at one part of what was said between Jesus and the people here. You remember, of course, that the people um, the next day, they saw that Jesus wasn't there. They guessed that he went to Capernaum. And so they uh, used boats, rented boats, whatever, stole them, borrowed them. Um, and they traveled to Capernaum from Tiberias. And uh, then they found Jesus and they asked him, how'd you get here? And Jesus didn't answer them. Um, he wasn't trying to be, you know, the modern day in touch with himself kind of leader uh, who is sensitive to all the felt needs of all the people and uh, tries to show himself to be transparent and vulnerable in all things. He's not that kind of Jesus here. He's the one who's in charge. He's the authority. And so when we come to John 6, verse 34, we see more of the same from Jesus. Let's stand together and read, beginning in verse 34, reading down through verse 48, John chapter 6. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up 
at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. I'm going to speak to you on finding the bread. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can see in your word uh, what you are trying to emphasize in the word of God as you call us to faith and repentance. And I pray, Lord, that there would be on our part a repentance towards you, a recognition of our rebellion towards you and the many ways that that rebellion has shown itself in our lives. And then, Lord, that there would be a true heart of faith, sincere, seeking you, trusting you, resting in you, committing ourselves to you. I pray that you would use the preaching of your word as we take the truth of what your word says and open it to your people. I pray that there would be a true response to what your word is saying, that we would see very clearly what our duty is towards you and that we would resolve to fulfill that duty. Please help me, Lord, as I preach. I ask that you uh, would uh, just uh, let me preach well this morning, the word of God, open it up to your people, guide me as I do. Please be in control. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The people of Israel were hungry. It's an interesting kind of hunger because Jesus has just fed them. He fed them the day before. And, you know, as they say, way to man's heart is through his stomach. You feed a man and then he'll follow you. I still, I've talked about this before, but when I was a teenager and uh, I went out, the first time I went out visiting on the bus route, and my bus captain took me out for lunch, and he had me right then. He had me because he took me to, I don't even remember what the place was, but it was good. And, uh, and food, you know, a teenage boy will follow someone anywhere if they're feeding them. <clears throat> and the men of Israel are that way. Now, they have a hunger that they can't really identify and they don't understand. And they don't really know what they're hungry for either. But they know that they're hunger, hungry and they know that Jesus has food for them. Now, the body is an amazing thing. And one of the amazing features of our body is this thing called craving. We crave certain things uh, because your body has a need for it. Now, I don't mean that with Coca-Cola all right, or sugar, okay? But I mean that there are other things that we're just hungry for because we need to eat it. I first saw this 
thing of craving up close and personal when my wife was pregnant. Um, one of them several times that she was pregnant. Um, and uh, the different things, funny things that she would crave when she was, the, the one I remember the most was with Laura because she constantly craved hot peppers all the time. We have no idea why that is um, or if that has anything to do with her red hair. Um, but uh, certainly there was a very definite craving for hot peppers. And sometimes the body knows what it needs when you don't know what it needs. I've heard of people with an iron deficiency eating the um, ashes out of ashtrays, um, like literally licking their fingers and eating it uh, there because of that craving and not even realizing that they're doing it. And I've heard of people actually licking the dust off the blinds uh, and those same kind of things. Cravings can make you do irrational things. As I learned when I went and got my wife a milkshake late at night and brought it to her and the smell of it made her want to puke. And um, so it wasn't really even a rational craving. It was just a craving there. The people of Israel craved the bread that Jesus gave. They wanted it. And they went in search for it. After he fed them, they waited all night by the docks in hopes that he would return to them. When he was not found in the morning, they rented boats. They traveled across the Sea of Galilee in hopes of finding him again. They wanted bread. They wanted bread. When he fed them, they realized that he had something for them that they desired, that they wanted, that they needed. In their mind... They wanted the temporal bread that Jesus had fed them. In reality, they probably wanted something more than just a free lunch. They see Jesus as a potential rescuer, deliverer. That's why they were going to take him and make him a king by force. A man who can feed 5,000 surely could lead them against Rome and keep them fed and make them victorious over their tyrants. But Jesus means here in this passage, and this is what I want you to understand, that he means to show them what they really want, what they're really hungry for, what they're really craving, because what they really want is himself. That's what they want. And they don't want him merely as a champion to lead them in battle. That may be what they think. But that's not what they want. They want him as a spiritual savior. That's their true need. Though they don't recognize it, most don't. But it is the need that drives us to seek our cravings, to seek the things that we long for, that we hunger for. When they feed on him, He will satisfy the deep need of their heart. He that cometh to me, Jesus said this, he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. It does not mean to say that once they come to me, to him, they will never need him again. That's not what he means. As if that initial encounter with Jesus would be sufficient for the rest of your life. I have Jesus 
And now I can go on and live my life the way I want without regard for him. Of course, that means that you haven't come to Jesus if you live that way. Having come to Christ, we all have a need to feed on him for the rest of our lives. That's what that means. As D.A. Carson says it, having come to Christ, that deep hunger that he called it core emptiness will be satisfied. In other words, all the cravings outside of Christ go away and the cravings focus on Jesus Christ and him alone. He is what I want. He is what I need. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, look at verse 35 in our text. Genesis 6, I'm sorry, John 6. John 6, verse 35. And notice the word never. It's used twice in the verse. And the word never there is an emphatic negation here. Okay, so in English, if you use a double negative, if you know English grammar, double negative means the opposite. Okay, you can't have no, you know, you can't have no hot dogs means you can have hot dogs. Well, I mean, not really, because the way we talk, you can't have no hot dogs means you're not having hot dogs right now, okay? No matter what. And that is the way it's used in Greek as well. The double negative is used for emphasis. It's an emphatic no. You cannot. Absolutely cannot. No, not ever. It means that under no circumstance will he ever hunger or thirst again. In fact, the Greek uses very strong language here in verse 35. Both hunger and thirst are subjunctives, and the subjunctive points to the strongest possibility. So Jesus is saying literally that there is not even a possibility that you will ever hunger again, that you will ever thirst again. By no means ever can he possibly hunger. By no means might he possibly thirst ever again. Now, this passage is part of a larger conversation that Jesus had with the Jews who followed him because of the miracle of the loaves, as I pointed out to you already. Already, Jesus has reminded these people that they shouldn't labor for the meat that perishes. He said that earlier in this uh, chapter, in verse 25, verse 26, I think they sought Jesus, not because they saw, verse 26 tells us, not because they saw the miracles and recognized the mighty works of God in the miracles that Jesus performed, but because they ate of the loaves and were filled. So their pursuit of Jesus is entirely self-centered, all about me. It's really, folks, it's the same thing we see with the prosperity gospel. You follow Jesus so you can have. So you can have more of what you want. 
so you're, you can have your best life now so that all your problems will go away and it will be all goodness, all roses and buttercups the whole way, that smooth way to heaven. But that's not the way it is in the Bible. Too many pursue the Lord Jesus in order to satisfy a selfish quest for self-fulfillment rather than as an obedient response to his rightful claim that he is Lord of everything, that he is God and there is none else. When you come to Jesus, you must come to him as the God of all the ages, as the God of this world. He must be your God or he will not be your savior. Jesus warned them in verse 27, labor not for the meat which perisheth. Instead, he urged them to seek the true bread from heaven. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And the people answered that with this plea. Lord, evermore give us this bread. So there was that, and this, this happens. There's that brief moment when all the fog is cleared away and there's recognition. And the people in their response recognize that what Jesus is offering is what they need, is what they want. But, you know, there's this problem here. It's an ongoing, repeated problem. Their rebellious hearts rise up over and over. They look at Jesus and they just can't believe it. They just can't believe it. Now, I'll take a moment and explain to you why they can't believe it. Because Jesus is a Galilean. He is the son of a carpenter. They say that. In fact, we read it a minute ago, right? He is not what they pictured, not what they looked for in a Messiah. He doesn't look all that messianic to them, right? They, they expected, I don't know, I guess to put it in terms we can understand today, they expected him to be ripped. You know, if you're going to be the Messiah, you got to be ripped, right? You got to have, you got to have some muscle, man. You got to be, you got to have some mass to you. You've got to, you've got to have some moxie, right? And that's what they're looking for. I, you know, again, what they admired in that day and what they thought in that day, I can't say. Certainly they thought that they were going to get themselves a, um, a, a general. They thought they were going to get themselves a champion for the battlefield. But, you know, all things being equal, probably nobody in that day would have picked out David to be the champion to defeat Goliath either, right? Because in David's day, nobody picked out David to be the champion to defeat Goliath, right? I mean, this is, this is human nature. We look on the outward appearance. Jesus is telling them, I am the bread of life, right? And they're saying, you're the carpenter's son. Your dad is Joseph. We know your dad. You can't be. You can't be. <clears throat> so 
We cannot say exactly what the people thought they wanted when they said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. But we do know for sure that what they wanted was not Jesus. They wanted the bread, but they didn't want Jesus. He says so directly in verse 36. Whatever it was that they were seeking, they were not seeking for him. That's not, they, that's not what they were looking for. For one thing, he's standing right there in front of them. And how did Isaiah say, say it? Uh, he hath no form nor comeliness, right? Um, there's nothing desirable about him. In our day, what do we look for? A magnetic personality, right? That's that's the big deal, right? Jesus doesn't have that. Most likely what they wanted really, I mean, this this is really mercenary, but I think what they wanted was bread that they didn't have to work for. I mean, who doesn't want that? Right? Free bread. If every day Jesus provided bread, like he had done when he fed the 5,000, their quest would have been over. And there's good reason to think that they were looking for that. Because when Jesus earlier, let's go back and look at it. What sign, verse 30, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay, now, I'm, I'm putting words in their mouth, okay? But I don't think, I think their argument went something like this. Come on, Jesus, you fed us once. Moses fed the Israelites every day for 40 years. So you're, you're one out of, what would 40 times 365 be? I'm not even going to do that math right now. You don't try to do it, okay? Because you won't listen to what I'm saying. It's a big number, big number, all right? But this is, this is what they're saying. You, you've done one little bit of what Moses did. So Jesus must have shocked them with the next thing he said. They said in verse 34, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread. I am the bread. There's no getting around this in this moment. When Jesus says, I am the bread. No getting around it. He is very clearly declaring himself to be the bread of everlasting life. Right there. And in fact, the passage that I'm preaching here begins and ends with this same statement. In verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In verse uh, 40, what, what is it? Verse 48, I am that bread of life. In between, Jesus explains the statement. Okay? And that's what I'm going to preach to you. Because what he explains to them is not in the sense in which he is the bread. He doesn't, 
He doesn't define what he means here. He also does not attempt to prove to anyone that he is the bread. But rather, what Jesus does here in the passage is to show them how the bread is received. How it's received. In the 34th verse, the people prayed, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. But they were thinking of the bread as something other than Jesus. Something that maybe Jesus could give them, but not what Jesus was. They thought of manna, which had to be given repeatedly. But Jesus didn't respond to them by saying, I've already given you the bread even though he had. Instead, he said, I am the bread. He points to himself. And Jesus keeps turning the conversation where he wants it to go, where he intends that it should go. Earlier, when the people asked him when or how he crossed the Sea of Galilee, he didn't answer. Right? Instead, he pointed out why they were seeking him, as we see in verse 26. Now they pray, Lord, evermore give us this bread, And for an answer, Jesus told them that he was the bread and then told them not how to get the bread. He doesn't tell them how to get the bread. He tells them why they aren't coming to him for the bread. Oh, they're saying, Lord, evermore give us this bread. But Jesus says this here, come and get it. But you won't come and get it. And here's why. That's what he tells them. they pray, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And for an answer, Jesus told them he was the bread and then told them why they weren't coming to him for satisfaction. That's the point of the message. This is why. Jesus doesn't offer any proof that he's the bread of life. He is the bread of life. He declares it. It is so. He doesn't need to prove it. And anyway, what good would it do for him to prove it? When people refuse to believe it, there's no proof that will persuade them. He had, in fact, already shown them that he was the bread of life by feeding them, right? All 5,000 of them. Instead, he shows them why they see but don't believe. Now, I want to draw out three points from the passage so we'll know what is involved in finding the bread, okay? So I, I don't want you to be like these Jews who refuse to find the bread. I don't want you to be that way. So I want to I use this. Jesus shows them why they don't find the bread, why they don't come to him for bread. I want to use that to ur- urge you to come to Christ for the bread. We also want to know why some never find the bread. Why, do, why is that? That some never find it. And of course, we want to point out, um, point everyone to the bread. And that's the, the main thrust here. So that you'll never hunger. So that you'll never thirst. All right. Here are my three points. Number one, why people see but don't believe. Number two, our responsibility, our responsibility in finding the bread And number three, Christ's promise to those who find the bread. Let's begin with that first point. 
why we see but don't believe. The 31st, I'm sorry, 35th verse tells us how we find the bread. Very simple. Come and believe. Come believing. He that comes, Jesus said, will never hunger. He that believes will never thirst. But then Jesus throws a curveball. He explains why many come but have not believed. Wait a minute. Did he not say that if we come, we'll never hunger? And if we believe, we'll never thirst? And now he says that many come but do not believe. They come halfway. Right? They come, but they don't believe. In verse 36, they've seen Jesus, but they have not believed. In verse 37, Jesus makes a progressive statement. All that the Father gives me, come to me. And of those who come to me, which, by the way, are the ones the Father has given, I will not lose any. The phrase, I will in no wise cast out, is the same double negative with the subjunctive. It's not possible. In no way is it ever possible that I will cast them out. That's what he says. He that comes to me, it is impossible that I would ever cast them out, he says. We're tempted to explain this as God's part and man's part. But that clearly is not the case here in this passage. If anything, what we have here is God's part and Christ's part. God electing, Christ preserving. Jesus explains why they don't come and believe. And the simple reason is because they can't. Not unless God the Father draws them. That's what Jesus says here. It's an uncomfortable truth, but it is what he says here. It's be, they can't come unless the Father draws them. That's how Jesus explains it. Notice that he explains it. He does not excuse it. He does not minimize it or diminish it. He explains it. He tells it straight up. There's no excuse for it. He doesn't offer an excuse. God is not excusing himself in this. God is sovereign. Under no circumstance can we claim that it is God's fault for not drawing us. We can't blame him. We can't say, well, God, you know, I didn't come because you didn't draw me. Because the truth is, he calls all men to repentance. He has said before us, His authority, His Lordship, His work of salvation and redemption. He has made abundantly clear. We cannot blame God if we don't come. Under no circumstance. Rather, it displays the extent of man's sin and the ruin in the fall. The way we have been ruined. Yesterday, um, Isla's son, Dennis, said to me several times, 
How is it that you can set before people the grace of God and all the good things that he offers to those who believe, and yet men will still reject and refuse what he's offered? How is that? It's because we're fallen, because sin has tainted our view and our vision so badly. I said this yesterday when uh, in the in the funeral message, when you've been accustomed all your life to living in a 10 by 10 prison cell, everything outside of that cell looks uncomfortable to you and undesirable. God is calling you out of the miry pit, horrible pit, out of the miry clay, out of the dungeon, out of the dungeon. But you're comfortable in that dungeon. Now, this points to, again, I talked about it in Sunday school, but again, something that where we are clearly confused and mistaken in our understanding of fallen man. Thomas Aquinas believed that the fall ruined only one part of man, that the only part of man that was ruined by the fall was his will. He thought that man's intellect was unspoiled by the fall and that therefore a man was able to find God in his intellect and come to God by means of his reason. And I am saying to you that many Christians think this same thing. Which is why we think, if I could just show them the right verse, if I could just give them the right illustration, if I could just make the right argument, they would see their need and they would come to Christ. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that light is come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Right? This is the case. I was about to say folks. And I thought, you know, that would just make me too earthy there. I've got to maintain this dignity. But this is the way it is, people. This is the way it is, folks. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we turn from it. We want no part with it. We see the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And we don't want it. We're afraid of it. Because that would mean giving up a life of sin. And we see sin as the good. And the inheritance that's in Christ Jesus as the evil. Our text destroys Thomas Aquinas' theory in two ways. First of all, the Jews' response shows that reason alone is not sufficient. And then Jesus makes two direct statements that prove it. The Jews saw Jesus and they heard his claim, but they wouldn't believe because, here's why, they wouldn't believe because they thought they knew him. They thought they knew him. Right? What do they say? Isn't this Joseph's son? The carpenter's son? That's what they said. They thought they knew him. He can't be the bread. 
He can't be the bread of life. He's the carpenter's son. We know this guy, right? He's not the bread of life. Right there we see where our intellect takes us. They can't see because they see. They see Jesus. They know very well of his miraculous power. And that's the amazing thing. That somehow in their mind they separate this. Oh yeah, I mean, he performed an unbelievable miracle, right? I mean, Moses, when did Moses make manna? Tell me. Ever. When did Moses cause the manna to fall from heaven? When did he do it? Never did. Never once. But Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He fed them all. He did it. They saw it. The carpenter's son. This man from Galilee. This guy from Nazareth. We know him. But they don't think to themselves, clearly we don't know him. They should have. They should have thought that. They can't believe it because they see him as one of themselves. He's a Galilean just like us. I know a Galilean when I see one. Of course, what they thought they knew of Jesus was incomplete. For instance, they missed the part about his virgin birth. Notice that they don't say that here in this passage, right? He's born of a virgin. That would make him different, wouldn't it? But they they forgot about that. Or they don't know about that. But that isn't the point. The point is, they were relying on their own minds to discover truth. And their minds failed them. Failed them. We see how miserably their minds failed them right here. And he displayed the glory and power of Almighty God in the deeds, in the acts, in the miracles that he worked. And their response is a case in point that the intellectual, the intellect of fallen man is not sufficient for bringing a person to know and believe in Jesus Christ. It is not enough. We cannot reason our way to salvation. We cannot. And we can say this in spite of the fact that Most believers, when they give their testimony, would talk about a thought process that took place in their hearts and minds where, you know, I thought this and then I saw this and then I thought this. And they could describe even the thought process. But we should understand that it wasn't the thought process that brought you to Christ. It wasn't. It was the father who drew you. To Christ. Whatever the reasoning process might have been. The father was drawing you. Through that. He was drawing you. Hebrews 4. Sorry. Hebrews 4 and verse 2. Says this. For unto us was the gospel preached. As well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. Not being mixed with faith in them. That heard it. And we all know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But plenty of people hear and do not believe. Plenty of people. And in fact, when they don't believe, it is their mind, their reason that keeps them from believing. Man cannot find God 
by means of his intellect alone. Jesus tells us why in this passage. He makes a positive statement and then a negative statement. The positive statement comes in verse 37. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, he says. The idea that the Father has a particular group of people that he gives to his Son as a gift is found in plenty of places in the Word of God. The Bible teaches this. Again, this is something we're not comfortable with because we like to be the ones in control. We like to be the ones in the driver's seat. But this is what God says. In Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, he says this repeatedly. John 17, 2, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. In John 17, verse 5, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. John 17, 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. In John 17, verse 24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. This is a major theme in the Gospel of John. It's a major theme in this passage as well. Jesus repeats the same idea two more times in our text, only he says it as a negative statement. First in verse 44, he says, No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Then in verse 65, not part of our text, Jesus repeats this point. Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. Clearly then Jesus intentionally asserts God's sovereignty at work in our salvation. Salvation is a sovereign work of God in our hearts. We can't explain our way out of it and we shouldn't try to. We shouldn't be embarrassed by it. And if we're troubled by it at all, the trouble that we feel in our hearts should remind us that God is God and there is none else. Jesus isn't embarrassed by this. He's not embarrassed to say it at all. He doesn't worry that saying so might upset someone's fine-toned soteriology. He isn't worried that We might throw our hands up helplessly and say, well, then what's the point? I mean, if I can't believe unless God draws me, so I might as well not worry about it. If we don't come to Jesus, we absolutely cannot blame it on Jesus. And we cannot blame it on God. We cannot conclude, we must not conclude that this is somehow God's fault. We don't have the option of sitting back and waiting for him to do the drawing. Do you remember what Jesus said? And I, he said, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. He's done the drawing already. But we go on in our refusal, in our rejection. 
Again, Jesus made the same statement twice, first as a positive, then as a negative. Everyone the Father gifts to Jesus will come to Jesus. That's what he said. By the way, in verse 37, the will come is a future indicative. The indicative always points to an actual reality of what happens right here. Um, This absolutely will happen, in other words. Then in verse 44, he says that no man, notice the word, verse 44. No man, do you see the next word? Can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. The word can in that verse translates the Greek word dunamis, which means power, ability. No man has the power, the ability, the capacity, the capability of coming to Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here does not cancel our responsibility to come at all or turn this into a fatalistic thing where God is drawing straws for who goes to heaven and who goes to hell or rolling dice, you know, and the high roll goes to hell or the high roll goes to heaven or however that is. Lightfoot says, so long as a man remains and is content to remain confident of his own ability without divine help, he cannot come to the Lord. He cannot believe only the father can move him to this step. So in other words, the point here is that in coming to Jesus, we rely absolutely on Jesus, not on ourselves, not on our ability to pray, not on our ability to plead, not on our ability to see our need. We don't rely on him at all, on ourselves at all. We rely on him absolutely because he says no man, no man comes except the father draws him. The two statements that Jesus makes here, the positive and the negative, show just how rebellious we are. Not, it does not show us how arbitrary God is. It shows us how rebellious we are, so rebellious that despite the wonderful work of God's grace in the gospel, we still will not ever come on our own. We won't. We are rebellious not only in our will, but in our minds as well, because we see God in Jesus Christ. But then, just like the Jews in this passage, we refuse to believe what we see. Our foolish heart is darkened. Professing ourselves to be wise, we become fools. And that's why we are so absolutely, totally dependent on Jesus. That's why we, when we come to him, we must plead with him, plead with him. Please save me. The fact that we can't come to him unless God draws us is an indictment against us and not an accusation against God. So then we come to our responsibility in finding the bread. What Jesus says here does not remove responsibility from man whatsoever. In fact, it places a greater responsibility on us. Let me show you why. First, because God has set before us 
all the information, everything that we need to know, everything we need to see, everything we need to believe. He has shown it to us. He's laid it out here. He's given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One simple place for us to look, and that is Jesus. The new birth opens the door of our understanding so that we are all taught of God. Jesus makes a wonderful statement. Look at it in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. I hope you won't miss the point here. God does not force your will. He does not force your heart. He does not force your mind. He does not. He doesn't force you to believe against your will. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. See, the way that God draws you is with his love. He draws you with his love. So, as one of the commentaries said it, when God compels belief, it's not by the savage constraint of the rapist, but by the wonderful wooing of a lover. And secondly, Jesus points out in verse 46 that we've not seen the Father, but that he has. And since he has, therefore he declares the Father to us, narrates the Father, explains the Father to us. He does. When Jesus tells us that we will be taught of God, he's not contradicting anything he said earlier. Even in this, we don't rely on our own minds, our own experience of being taught of God. We rely completely on Jesus. We depend on him completely. No man cometh unto the Father, Jesus said, but by me. And therefore, Jesus stresses the point in verse 47 with a verily, verily, he that believeth on me, he said, hath everlasting life. Here's the point. We can't rely on our own reason. We can't rely on our own intellect to bring us to God through Christ to show us the way of salvation. And since we can't, what we have to do is to depend absolutely on Jesus. That's our responsibility. To hear his word and believe him. If we won't, we will never find the way of life. If you try to find it on your own, you will never find it. The door will never appear for you. It is impossible to reason ourselves into heaven. If we'll admit that our own mind and our own reason and our own intellect is ruined by the fall, and if we'll acknowledge our absolute dependence on Jesus Christ, and if we'll take him at his word, then 
we can be rescued from our sin. So let me show you then Christ's promise to those who find the bread. Maybe you notice um, in preaching this passage, I've skipped over a chunk of it that I really haven't dealt with. And we've dealt heavily with other parts. Now let's go to the part we've skipped. Because sprinkled generously throughout this part of Christ's discourse on the bread, we find the same promise repeated six times in this passage. Six times the same promise. In verse 37 to 40, Him that cometh to me, he says, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Again in verse 44. And I will raise him up at the last day. And in verse 47, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Jesus says that all who come to him are drawn of God. And those who are drawn of God will never, never, no, never be lost. Never. That's why Jesus came. He gives the reason in verse 38. He came down from heaven not to do his will, but to do his father's will. His obedience then is our assurance. His obedience is our obedience. He will keep us. He will raise us from the dead. Our text began with a prayer. The people prayed to Jesus, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. Jesus showed them the answer. He said, I am the bread of life. But they couldn't see that. They should have seen it. It should have been clearer to them even than it is to us. Should have been. Now, I just make a point here that that's the power of God's words, that we see it when they couldn't. When he is standing in front of them, we think, man, surely if I saw him standing there, I I would believe that. No, but you believe the word of God. That shows you the power of God's word. They were blinded by their sin. And in their blindness, they could not see Jesus for who he was. That's why we need to go back to the gospel of John over and over. That's why the gospel of John is so important for us. Because John keeps taking us back to Jesus pointing at him and saying to us, see him, believe him, believe him, right here. If you can do that, if you can see Jesus as he's presented in the word of God, you have no one to thank for that except for God. You don't get credit for that. God doesn't say, you, you are valedictorian. You are the smartest kid in the class, right? Go to the head of the class. He doesn't say that. He says, thank me. Thank me. If you can't 
If you can look in the Gospel of John and see the Jesus that is presented there and you cannot believe, you have no one to blame but yourself. No one to blame but yourself. Because there he is in all his glory painted large for you to see. And there you are seeing, but not believing. If you don't see, don't wait for a special voice to call you from God. Don't wait for a special whisper. The call that we find in the very word of God is sufficient. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Drop everything and come. Drop your opinions, drop your ideas, drop your prejudices, and come to him now. And when you come to him and believe on him, he promises that you will never hunger and you will never thirst. And that's because he is the bread of life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. The bread that he fed to the 5,000 there on the hillside was the food of temporal life. And Jesus promised better bread to those who would come to him believing. As the bread of life, Jesus means to tell us that he is the sustenance, he is the fuel, not of temporal life, but of everlasting life. Only now Jesus has explained why it is that we seek him, but don't find him. It's clear that Jews here seek him. They crossed the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee to find him. They found him. Only they didn't find him, though. They didn't find him. They saw him, but they did not believe. Jesus showed them the way to correct the problem. And that way, the way he showed them is available to you. It's available to everyone, but it's available to you right now. It's very simple. Come and believe. Come believing. Don't wait for a special voice. Just come. Don't wait for a nudge from God. Just come. You see the real Jesus, the Jesus that we preach to you, the Jesus that's open to you in the Gospel of John. You know that you should come. So come, believe, eat, live, be nourished, be satisfied. Come to Christ.